Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about well-being and why it matters that we pay attention to culture. My guest today is Dr. Brenda Dobier, a senior lecturer in the School of Education at Western Sydney University. Brenda has led Resources Development for Kids Matter, the Australian National Primary School's mental health initiative. And she's also done a lot of research into how these resources need to be adapted for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students and their families. Brenda's doing a lot of work in this area and we are delighted to have her with us today. Kia ora Brenda and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Well, thank you for the invitation. Brenda, tell us about your background and how you got involved in researching cultural responsiveness within social and emotional programs. My original academic background in psychology and in clinical psychology, so that got me very interested in well-being and mental health and uh, led me to being uh, recruited by when we started our uh, national initiative in um, mental health for primary schools, that was Kids Matter. Um, But my doctoral work is in anthropology, so uh, the cultural bent and the understanding of, of some of those issues goes back quite a way. You've worked with Kids Matter, the Australian National Mental Health Promotion, Prevention and Early Intervention Framework for Children, now updated and called BU. Tell us about that work. The, the interesting challenge when I started at Kids Matter was they were keen, because I was working with the Psychological Society, they wanted a, a series of tip sheets for parents. And I said, oh, well, let's have a look. There are a lot of tip sheets out there. And I thought, well, actually, if what we really know needs to happen that doesn't happen is to get the teachers and the parents working together, so let's think about this. You know, how can we create something that can speak to parents without speaking down to them? and at the same time to teachers. So that was where we designed this series of resources. And I said, and you know what, I'd rather write stories. So so we created all these little narratives and that was supposed to be to open the window so that the parents could see in non-technical language, oh, yeah, I could relate to that story. And then we kind of unpacked it. So that was really, really important. If we're talking about well-being and we're talking about context, it's not... It can be an isolated kind of expertise. Here, just add this. We want to affect the context. The context is the relationships. So, you know, and and that ultimately was was what was effective across the several components of Kids Matter, which include looking at the relational context of the school between the teachers and between the teachers and the parents. and then SEL, you know, what was easy and, and then most easy and, and, and uh, most quickly embraced by the schools was social-emotional learning. Okay, this is what we know how to do and we're comfortable with. Let's do stuff in the classroom. And, and, um, in, and what, what 
we did that was successful with with uh, with kids matter it's interesting to compare what's happened in the US and what's happened what happened in Australia and what happened in the UK so you know the UK also had a national initiative their seal initiative yeah. and there was some they were a bit disappointed in the findings because they opted to create a national uh, curriculum that then perhaps didn't have the level of of support for, for, for teachers that it might have had. And so the outcomes are a little bit mixed. Uh, in the US, you don't have a national education system, but you do have, um, uh, you know, a lot of researchers with a lot of resources building their own programs. So most of the effort in the US has been on particular programs and then implementing those particular programs in very specific ways and checking the outcomes. So what Kids Matter managed to do successfully in a, in a national program was rather than saying this is the SEL curriculum, said okay, we've evaluated a whole range of SEL programs that are around and we've highlighted the strengths and weaknesses of each of them and looked at the evidence base. Now we're going to support you to, to understand what SEL is trying to achieve and you the school team who's coordinating this and with your staff choose the one that you think is going to best fit your, you know, and with some guidance around, yeah. around what's going to work. But, but enabling and encouraging them to choose something that's going to be relevant for their and right for their context. Right. Yeah. And that's where it worked best. You know? <coughs> and even uh, there were some schools, if I, if I think about the context of um, schools that did well with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, and there weren't many, which I should come back to. So, so we had we had very uh, really good outcomes across the the pilot, which was two hundred schools over a couple of years, um, and and that was all great. And I and I you know the the resources definitely helped us to support that process. Um, but at the end of that, they said, oh, we've got some funding now. We, want, we need to do an Indigenous adaptation. And, you know, I, along the way when we were creating those, you know, and I, and we, and I, and I really enjoyed creating those narratives. But, but I said to them, you know what, these are, these are kind of mainstream narratives. Um, they're not going to work for every cultural context. And they're not going to work for Aboriginal kids. It needs to be storied for them. Which, which, but, but we wanted the main one. They wanted the main one first, so we did that. So then, when it came to doing the Indigenous adaptation, um, I said, "Well, before we make any assumptions here, because we know that most of the data, most most of the research in psychology, is coming out of a very middle class white Western context." You know, and even most of the stuff that we adopt, if you have a look at where all the research comes from and all the journals come from, it's US-based. Mm. Um, so we can't make that assumption, you know, that it's the same for everybody. So I said, I think before we look at that, we should go back to the schools who are involved in the pilot that had significant numbers of Aboriginal kids and see what happened there and what worked, you know. Um, and it and it, and you know it it really didn't work. It didn't engage them. 
Certainly not that generalist one. What was interesting was that there were a couple of standouts that worked really well. And so what was going on there? So we need to look at what exactly what was going on there. So in one of the schools, which which had um, something like seventy percent of kids from different from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, but they also had high numbers of refugees. They were really effective in building community. So there were things like the, the principal would be at the gate every morning and every afternoon to personally greet every student. They had once a term a big breakfast where, you know, everybody would come in and they also had services from the community who were part of that that everybody shared. They initiated this process that they called a um, three-way something, three-way meeting or something, where so instead of having the parent-teacher meeting, they had the whole family, including the kids, and they were, okay, let's see what, what we need to do to support your learning. You know, they were very okay. yeah. And they had a really strong um, uh, parent committee led by um, a woman who, who, I mean, if she wasn't qualified as a community development officer, she certainly operated that way. She was really, really good in bringing the community together. And, and one of the particular features they established was a community garden. And what was found was that um, both parents and kids who were either new to the school, who were a little bit unsure, would go to the garden and, you know, find their place. Yeah. It was a real coming together. And then they, and they had... Um, regular, I can't remember whether it was weekly or monthly, but then they started to do um, cook-ins, you know, so they'd have the parents from different backgrounds come and they cook together a healthy meal, taking stuff from the garden, while the kids did circus, actually, activities. Um, you know, so there was so much engagement with community and making it a community space. Now, so that school did really well on that stuff. When I looked at SEL with that school, it wasn't so convincing because they were using something that was still standardised. You know, that was probably, there were lots of good things they were doing, um, but the, the school that did outstandingly well with SEL was, again, a school with a high proportion of Aboriginal kids, uh, Aboriginal principal, <laughs> um, Really uh, well-resourced, I think there were about five um, Aboriginal education workers who were highly respected in the school. And when they decided to do SEL, first of all, they chose a program that did not was not necessarily evaluated as highly in terms of the standardised evidence base as some of the others, but they chose it because they felt that the approach that was taken was most coherent with the approach for their kids, and they were right. So it was based on a circle system, and, and, that, and, and um, that included you know, we listen to each other as you do, um, and no put-downs, 
and you can pass if you want to. And, you know, I met with the Aboriginal education workers and I, and I said, so, so tell me what, what's, what's worked here. They said, oh, the right to pass. And I'm like, oh, the right to pass was the central thing these kids. So tell me, I'm really curious because I've been reading your research and and I know with the Aboriginal Girls Circle that was really significant. Why was that so important? So so what we have, um, uh, what we see particularly in Aboriginal settings is um, there are different, first of all, there are different values around socialisation of kids. And uh, in fact, we've been able to show, because when we went on to the Aboriginal Girls Circle research that we went on to do later, we wanted to also look at what makes the difference in terms of resilience and well-being. And without assuming that, that well-being and resilience is the same and the sense of self is the same. So we, we've been able to actually identify that um, social connections amongst the, the kids and the sense of identity that derives from being part of that collective community is far more prominent, even in urbanised uh, Aboriginal communities, than this individualised sense of self. So what it means, for example, so then if you ask the, the, the kids, so to stand up and be singled out becomes, they call it um, often a shame job. <laughs> Um, not which is which is which is you know to, to, to single yourself out and big note yourself is not the way to go you know and you learn by watching others and so and so what the Aboriginal education workers said is well by having the right to pass they can watch and see how it, how it all works and then just come in when they're comfortable um, and it made all the difference. It made a huge difference. It's interesting. It's so it's so fundamental. I'm reminded of um, Chris Peterson, American researcher who did a lot of work with Nansuk Park, who is from South Korea, and um, he says. I remember him saying one time, in South Korea they have a saying, "The nail that stands up gets hammered down." Mm-hmm. And he said, in the U.S., the nail that stands up gets its own TV show. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's- we forget quite how, quite how central and important that is, the desire to fit in and be part of the collective. Absolutely. So, you know, and in cultural psychology, they've identified, you know, individualistic sense of self versus collectivist sense of self. And I think that's a useful frame. But there, there are also all sorts of permutations you know, it's it's not a simple binary. I, I don't think we should see it as a, you know, and, and when I mentioned about the issue of, of shame uh, in Aboriginal communities, which which is big, it, you know, so one thing is about standing out, but of course it, it's it's also about um, the history of colonisation as well, because you know you've got kids who are coming from a home context where there's a particular way of interacting. There's there's particular ways of working with noise, there's particular ways of talking to people, and school is very different. You know, so they're constantly having to negotiate between what's okay in one context and what's not okay in the other. And of course, the overlay on that of historical oppression, very commonly their parents 
have had really bad experiences at school from the beginning. So they may, the whole family, the whole community might be sensitive to that. Um, you know, and of course they may be experiencing it themselves in school because unfortunately we still do. And I could quote you the numbers. You would think that um, there's been increasing interest in here in Australia in closing the gap for uh, Aboriginal kids' achievement. You would think that over the, the period of 10 years or something there would be um, some good outcomes. There's a little bit at the top end. There's more kids finishing high school um, and we can see some really good achievements but by the same at the same time what we see where I am in New South Wales is that the rate of suspension has gone up steadily only for Aboriginal kids and not for others. Interesting. So, you know, and we're also seeing increasing rates of incarceration. We know that that's a pipeline. So that's about lack of belongingness and marginalisation and all of those other things. And we can, we can shift that in, in school. We, we see some good pockets of practice, but unfortunately it's not systemic. Yeah. And the inclusion, and, but, but, but inclusion with an understanding of diversity, it doesn't just mean you get to participate in the mainstream. It means we actually include and value your context and what you bring. And I guess, so, so in a sense, what you're saying, what I'm hearing from you, Brenda, is that um, you've been part of um, some very extensive research that has looked at approaches to support social and emotional learning and found that um, it actually has not been effective in the schools where they have high proportions of indigenous and refugee communities unless they off their own bat took it and adapted it and made it right for themselves. Absolutely. Our First Nations communities have been saying this all along. You know, that's what, what's really important for our kids is their connection to culture. Yeah. Um, and we are finally, I mean, we've got... We've got to do the research to demonstrate that. You know, we've been able to do some that, that's highlighted that and that it, it's, it, it's not the SEL alone. It's in combination with the work on cultural identity that, that provides the good outcomes. Um, many of the things that work in that context, because we, we're talking about uh, how to include and value and respect marginalised groups. So that extrapolates out to many other kids as well. So we've just done some, some research recently in the UK around circles um, and what we, you know, as a methodology for SEL. So most of the evidence-based SEL programs really focus on developing skills. And, and I, I, you know, that's important. Um, however, the way in which we look at developing skills is high, often highly individualised, you know. So if you think about um, you, most, most uh, SEL programs will include something about, you know, developing friendships, for example, and uh, assume that by teaching the communication skills, at an individual level, then that will transfer into making friends. You know, and, so, and obviously there's active experiential components. Those are really important. Bit. 
Um, but in the in the circles approach that we use, it's a collectivist approach to learning SEL. It's not teacher driven. It's actually well, let's learn this together. Um, and it's and it's it, it, it's it's a highly democratic approach, and it, it supports the the kids to explore. Well, what what does it mean to be a friend? And it has them interacting with everybody in the class. And what was really interesting coming out of that, I mean, this well, it was a very short pilot, so it was a little bit short to show the show the long term uh, outcomes from a statistical perspective. Uh, however, what we found coming out of the kids' comments was really powerful. You know, I learned that I have more friends than I thought. <laughs> um, I, I learned, I should, I should have a look at the, at, the, at the quotes, I haven't got them in front of me right now, but it, but it was things like, um, uh, you know, I, ma I made friends with people that I never thought I could be friends with. You know, I learned I can work with others, you know. I have more confidence now. So actually, these are not separated standardised assessments. This is what the kids yeah. themselves are saying. And what was so powerful was it improved, hugely improves the relationship between the teachers and the students, but it improves the relationship between the students themselves. They're learning the skills while working on the relationships and it supports the work on the relationships. And what you wind up with is a classroom that is inherently inclusive. There's a lot of concern here about the PISA rankings, you know, everywhere. And the issue is we've still got high achieving kids, but we've got this long tail and lengthening tail, you know. These are the kids who are being marginalised by competition. You know, the, the, the over-assessment, you know, I mean, assessment for diagnostic purposes, okay, but what ends up happening is kids get labelled and they get left behind. You, you actually need to create a context to minimise that because, because exactly, those are the kids who need to be brought forward. They need to, be, to feel they're included. Um, and there's so much benefits to, to, to those individuals, to the classroom environment as a whole, um, when we can see that. And not only that, if we talk about SEL or wellbeing, the, 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 the kids who maybe are doing okay what are they learning out of, out of actually being able to work with and support the others so much? Perspective taking, empathy, um, cooperation, support, all of those things which, which are being labelled 21st century skills and are absolutely crucial. It sounds like the work you've been doing is really very focused on student voice and community engagement. Um, what advice would you give to schools that want to do work on wellbeing, on SEL? Um, with marginalised communities or with any community, actually? Well, you know, you have to start with engagement. You know, don't start with engagement and, and don't assume that you know your community. Make the connections. That groundwork is absolutely crucial, you know. So you, you build the relational context to begin with and then other things flow out of that. You know, we had, uh, in one of the projects that we did, 
that introduced circle solutions in a school. It was interesting because the the, the discipline system, and even though they were using BB4L, um, the in this case it was a deputy principal who became the sort of advocate for, for what we were looking at doing. But you know, she described it. She was at loggerheads with the with the kids and the families. Um, really, she was the disciplinarian, and, and there were all, always issues. Um, once she became involved. In, in this in in the in the program which which was uh, the Aboriginal girls circle beginning with uh, engaging in a non hierarchical way through the program in playing games with the kids she got to know them on a whole different level they got to know her on a whole different level and she said you know completely changed she walked down the street instead of getting abused when she saw families they were running up and saying hey miss you know and similarly, it shifted what she was doing with the families. Now, so we really need to acknowledge that two-way process is fundamental and that has to start from not assuming that we know everything about our communities that we're working with or our kids that we're working with. It's not just about curriculum. We certainly found that in Kids Matter. It's when you're looking at a whole school approach, um, there's an emphasis on the ethos of the school. So what does that mean? It's the relational tone. It's the way, it's the values that we hold and the way in which we enact them. And that's, and that's absolutely crucial. You don't get outcomes from, from social-emotional learning if it's just in the classroom. It's got to be seen to be enacted and followed through throughout policy and practice. So if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being for for the, the world at large, what would it be? Only one thing. Oh, mm. the world needs so much. I know. But if there was, what would be your one favourite thing that you would feel you wanted to do? Um, I think, you know, the thing that's been really occupying me and that I find really uh, important is the, the notion of shared humanity and how do we cultivate that. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely through, you know, the, the, the work around that collective uh, learning is really, really important, whether that's in a school context, an out-of-school context, across the board. What is your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you get <laughs> frustrated or down? What works for you? I'm going to say um, I hang out with my dog a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, you know, it's family, it's connections, uh, and, it, and it is increasingly built in community. I have to say that I, um, I do have a tendency, you may not sound like that, but I do have a bit of an introverted tendency, and I can sort of just kind of go inside and like, oh, this is not good. Um, but, you know, going out and saying, hey, there's friends out there, there's other people uh, um, that's really important. I, I, I do have a, a background in, in um, yoga and, and teaching yoga, and that's always like that's my first aid these days if I really need it. But um, I think that need for connectedness and you know having the opportunity to share something with others is really, uh, I think, most important. Fabulous. 
Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real treat. Thank you. It has been an absolute delight for me too. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the latest research and practice in school well-being, join us at the Wellbeing and Education Conference in Christchurch from the 2nd to the 4th of April and Auckland from the 6th to the 7th of April 2020. For more information, go to nziwr.co.nz or conference.co.nz forward slash wenz20.